your buggers. Band the chosen few on whom the spirit came. Twelve valiant saints their hope they knew and mocked the cross and flame. He met the tyrants, brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. He bowed his head, his to feel Hi everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. This is the podcast where two lifelong friends and film fans watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. This week, we're going to be talking about one of my picks. This is John Huston's film from 1975, The Man Who Would Be King. We had both seen this a number of times before, but we rewatched it for the show today and have not discussed it until right now. So since it was my pick, the rule is Mike gets to give his, his gut reaction first in segment one. Mike, go. Well, I'd seen this uh, a couple of times when I was 13. I was hanging out at a friend's house and uh, his dad didn't know what to do with us. There were like five or six of us. And he goes, uh, you boys want to watch a movie or and, and it was The Man Who Would Be King, which we all thought was uproarious. We thought it was one of the funniest movies that we'd ever seen. Uh, and then it as it starts to get serious, you like the, the laughter died down. And it's it's not um, it's not a studied serious or a pondered seriousness uh, The the movie tries to maintain the same tone, but it, it gets, it gets perceivably darker. And uh, that, that was working on us even as kids. So th- this has been uh, kind of a lifelong favorite of mine. Yeah. Even as a 13 year old, you'd be able to sit back and make a face and say, why is Danny acting like that? Why is he becoming such a jerk without really understanding why? I, I, well, I think one of the things that makes it so clear for you is when they sign the contract in the beginning, meaning, uh, you, you know, some, some of the suppositions of their brotherhood and friendship uh, are to be implied, uh, but some are direct. And that's why I think that the, the contract is such a great gag. That's not my moment, so I'll just say it now. Yeah, well, the contract is a great gag because it's a it's a hilarious moral dodge. Like, we're going to go set up ourselves as kings of Kafiristan, but at the same time, we are going to, we, we, the niceties must be observed. It's like the contract in the in the quiet man. Like, they're going to they're do, all, it, it's, it's this way to bring decorum to, to something that is a lot more messy. Well, you know what it reminded me of? Um, there's a, a story of Peter O'Toole uh, was doing a movie with Richard Burton, and they both agreed that they wouldn't touch a drop because uh, John Gilgood and other people were in the movie and they wanted to impress them. Like they didn't they, they didn't want to get drunk on set in front of uh, in, in front of Gilgood. So for like eight or nine weeks, they didn't drink a thing. And then um, they called rap on a Friday night. And one of the scenes, apparently, where uh, Peter O'Toole is supposed to put a, a ring on Richard Burton got got ruined in the lab. And like literally they had to send stage hands out amongst town to try to find either of them because they hadn't had a drink for two. But but I guess I'm, I'm telling you that story because that's like two actual British people, um, you know, of the same character and of the same kind of uh, rap scallionous personality that made a that made a similar bargain but it, again it had to it couldn't be implicit it had to be explicit that's awesome well let's talk about the the, the, the rapscallion is, is a perfect word for these two because it's funny for me that the movie you said before you loved it as a kid because and it was billed as this sweeping adventure story 
right? I think one of the, one of the taglines and the posters was, um, you know, the, the greatest adventure story of all time or something. And it is, it is a sweeping technicolor. I mean, watching it again, it, it, the, the color is so good. The movie looks so fantastic. So it is this sweeping technicolor adventure film, but at the same time, it undermines that. It, like he really does get to have it both ways, right? So when Danny says, um, now you listen to me, you benighted muckers, we're gonna teach you soldiering, the world's noblest profession. When we're done with you, you'll be able to slaughter your enemies like civilized men. And it's funny because this, uh, uh, the movie is like the Kipling story is that you get to have it both ways, right? So these two guys are repscallions. You could even say in the beginning, they're completely morally empty and, and morally bankrupt. They're crooks, right? But they're played by two of the most likable, captivating, charismatic movie stars that were working in 1975. But there's a clear principle at work. Um, and I'll get into this a little bit more in my moment. But I the, the movie is actually not against the enterprising nature of the two guys. But the, the, there's um, not far enough. There's just right. And there's too far. And I think that anything, you know, the, the movie in that way is it's shot in beautiful color, but really morally it works in shades of gray because there is a sweet spot. There's an enterprising spot where you're willing to go where no person, no other person is willing to go. Uh, but again, there's like they're staying at home and there's too far. And I, I feel like even though they are morally bankrupt uh, to the extent that they're clearly manipulating other people. Um, uh, again, a lot of that is delivered as gags. There's there's some of this, which is like maybe one degree away from like a Blazing Saddles gag sure. or something like that. Like when, when they first take the town and they, they call him whatever the great and the guy, the translator says um, he he prefers um, Utah the great. He wants to be Utah the terrible. Yeah, he prefers Utah the terrible. Uh, you know, that that's almost that's almost a Blazing Saddles joke. But but morally, this pictures in a different universe. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, if you don't, if you do, if you do not find those two guys charming and endearing, and if you're not grinning when, when they, when they come on screen, then the movie doesn't work. It, it, it'll never have a chance with you. And if you want to watch this in a snit and cross your arms and, and start reciting things you heard in your, in your class, then forget it. The, the, you, you, the movie doesn't stand a chance with you, but it also reminded me, it was funny. You said about moral grays, right? Um, how much did this remind you? And I, maybe it was just me, but I, I want to get your gut reaction to this, your, your unplanned gut reaction. How much does this remind you of shooting an elephant? The essay by George Orwell. Yes. Uh, so both, I mean, from the Rudyard Kipling standpoint, there's there's an obvious parallel there. But beyond that, there is the point of view of a person who may not be from the area, but is also from the area, right? That's that's part of the moral gray. It's like, well, wh where was Kipling born? Where was Orwell born? And wh what are the what are the rules of certain kinds of chaos? Yeah, I mean that's that's true too, and that's funny because that didn't even occur to me. The, the shooting an elephant um, angle that occurred to me was that one of the great things about that essay, and there's many many great things about it, is that. Orwell, the speaker in the essay, the, the figure who has got to go kill the elephant, never comes to this kumbaya moment with the people he's supposed to defend. He, he, he doesn't like them. They don't like him. But the essay is about how he gets manipulated into this strange, strange situation where he has to act. He's, he either has to shoot the elephant or he's afraid of looking like a fool. And he says, you know, that's the, that's the same position the British Empire got into. And that's what happens when you start making empires. But it reminded me of, you know, this isn't my moment either. But when when Danny says um, towards the end of the movie, he says, like, let him go back to uh, let him go back to slaughtering babies and, and playing stickball with each other's heads and pissing on their neighbors where, where there's, the movie doesn't come to this kumbaya moment either. And that that's through Utah, the terrible being a figure of fun, but also through when you hear those screams at the end, 
when, you, when Danny says what's going on there, it reminded me very, very much that, that the reason that essay is so good is because the people in it are human beings. And I think the same thing is going on here. Yeah, I think everyone is treated with sentiment, but without sentimentality. The funny thing about them is that they are sentimental towards their values, masonry, uh, yeah. the, the the army, their friendship. They are, they are sentimental in a way that is that is clearly drawn out. And in fact, you, to to your earlier point, um, the version of colonialism that's portrayed in this movie is like a is like a colonial carnival. It's it's everything that the students, you know, it's everything that the that the continental critics would have it be. And now that it, that's been established and there's no apologizing for it, we can get to the actual individuals. So welcome back in part two. We like to talk about our favorite moments or, or a moment that for us reflects the film as a whole. Mike, what's yours? My moment is when Danny and Peachy are called before the magistrate um, and Kipling is there. And essentially they're given the dressing down and told that that they're probably going to be sent home, even though there's there's not enough charges to arrest them. And what he says to them is that it's detriments like you that are ruining this colony. And that's really, I think, you know, to my earlier point just now is when the tables first get get turned on a reading of every white person in this movie being um, necessarily the same kind of cog in the colonial system. Surely they are, but there's a, there's a kind of narcissism which leads the magistrate to believe that not only does he belong there, but that he's in control, right? And, and it reminds you that there's levels of that system because what Peachy actually said is, were you calling us detriments when it was us that were getting shot at when we built this bloody colony? And then he goes a step further and he reminds him of all the white army officers that ran away when the Afghans that were fighting with them on their side came and stood post. And so again, there, it, it's not necessarily, um, it's, not a, it's not a color issue. It's not a country issue. There are people that are in the club, in the brotherhood. It's and a there class are people, issue. There are, there are people who are out of it. Yeah, it's, it reminded me of, of Churchill once said, you know, we all may be worms, but I believe I am a glowworm. And the magistrate believes he is a glowworm. But when they do their when they do their um, hats on, hats off, you know, they're going to they're going to outglow him, so to speak. It's, it's a mockery of his formal order. Yes. And so be, because he believes that the world is ordered and not chaotic, they mock him in their order by marching in, uh, presenting their doffing their caps dressing him down and then saying hats on and turning about face. And the movie, of course, endorses that, which is why you're so drawn to that moment. That's that you've seen that movie. You'll see that clip all over YouTube. I mean, it's a famous, famous scene because it's it endears you to those two. Well, that's when Daniel that's when Daniel's in the club. And as long as he remains in that club, you know, so uh, Kipling tells him that uh, obviously that they're crazy and he's not going with them, but he's established himself as the only source of truth in this local colonial outpost. I mean, that's that's a version of being a glowworm too. But again, that there's a difference between being enterprising and wanting more, right? And when we covered- Key Largo. When we covered Key Largo, the problem with the villain, with Edward G. Robinson's character in Key Largo is that he just wants more. Right. And he doesn't know when's enough. And I think that there's a, a certain version of that brotherhood. You can call it a middle-class appetite you can call it whatever you want. They don't want less, but they don't necessarily want more. And it's when Danny goes insane and he leaves the circle at the other end 
that the movie falls apart morally. Yeah, because when they first find the first trinkets, remember, he's like, this must be worth five, five pounds. And when they find the things put together, and then when they, when they go into the treasure room and they see really what's out there, and, and Michael Caine says, we can walk out of here now. This is, this is, we'll be set for, for beyond our lifetimes, but it's not enough. So it's kind of funny, like, like when do you become um, Edward G. Robbins in Aquila Largo, or when do you become Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood? It's when you, it's when you start to believe it. Right. right. So Michael, Michael Caine, when Michael Caine tells them that they're lords, he's trying to manipulate them. It's when Danny starts to believe that he's a lord that the movie goes off the rails or that he goes off the rails. Well, it's great you said that because that leads perfectly into my moment. So my moment is when you have Danny rendering judgment with his golden arrow, which is so it's it's you watch this and you're like, you know, how great are these these actors, these people that got this together? So. The great thing is, of course, we see in a way that even you were able to detect at the uh, tender age of 13, how much he's starting to change, right? And he has that little great bit where he tells Peachy, um, just go along with the act, just bow. My Sean Connery's not that good, but I just want just to go along with the act. And you could see that Peachy is kind of like, all right, like, yeah, I guess, but he starts to, he starts to catch on too. So we know there's more to it. We know that, um, that Danny loves being the judge. He loves playing Solomon. And it re- thought, so I thought to myself, I'm watching that and I'm grinning watching it. I'm like, now, what is that like? What does it remind me of? Well, it reminds me of something Socrates says in the Apology. When Socrates is, is um, speaking in the Apology before his death, he says, you know, I was told I was the smartest man in Athens. How could that be? I don't know anything, right? And I went to the judges and I went to the priests and I went to, I went to the, um, these people and those people. I tried to ask him all these questions, but nobody could tell me anything. And then I went to the poets and then I found out that just because they were skilled at one thing, they thought they could render opinions on all kinds of other things. So again, what is that like? It reminded me of, you know, actors and athletes sitting with their golden arrows in judgment, making pronouncements about things they have, they have no idea what they're talking about just because they actually believe it. And it's so funny you just said that. They actually believe their own machine. They believe their own BS. Like when he says, um, this is not the first time I've worn a crown. Like he actually starts to believe that. And it's great because he thinks to himself, you know, he thinks he is worshiped because he is divine. But the point is he feels divine because he is worshiped that, that he's fooled them well enough that he actually starts to believe his own BS. And just like the real Alexander did think he was part God, he walked around Alexander, the great had a diadem he had to wear. He thought he was, he was a descendant of gods. He starts to believe it. So you could draw a line from, from I think Danny in this film to people like Bono to people, you know, all kinds of celebrities tweeting about issues of the day and making their fans say, why can't you just, just play the song, just play your guitar or whatever it's going to be that when you start to believe the, the your own um, fan base, then you start to think you're, you're a, a source of authority on everything. And I think that what draws him back is that he becomes Danny again before he dies. Right. Because he, he dies. As, he doesn't yes. die as the king. He dies as Danny. And one of the interesting things is, um, you know, if you if you watch a lot of movies, if you get into a lot of literature, if you start to follow all the things in the podcast, what's the compelling reason why so many stories have to be framed around that moment? Because mortality is the great equalizer, not in the sense that it happens to everybody is because it takes you down to base truth. It's the, it's the pin that pops the balloon and lets all the, and lets all the air out or allows you to have the moment of, of self-realization. And I think that I, at least as a viewer then, and now am I'm relieved when I hear Danny singing and he's making a mockery of it because it's just like he was in the office. He's, he's recovered himself. And so I, I think that that's supposed to be a hopeful moment, not in the sense that he plummets to his death, but in that it doesn't matter what delusions you've given into that it's still, your self is still recoverable. 
Yeah. And, and, and that he's, he's tempted and he gives into the temptation. So the, and the Houston does not want to sit in judgment of him. I mean, he redeems himself in the eyes of the viewer, certainly, but who knows what, who knows how, how people would react. I mean, Peach doesn't react that way, but you know, he gets his too. He also gets, he also gets crucified um, for, for, for what he's done too. So he certainly redeems himself. And it reminds me of what you were just saying about that part in Moby Dick where Ishmael steps over the, the, the triworks, which was a boil all the whale fat. And he, he pulls his foot back just in time, but he realized that Ahab didn't and other people might not. So it's easy. It would be easy to sit in judgment. And I'm laughing at him calling him Bono and stuff. It's easy to sit in judgment of that, of that person, but no one's been in that spot. And who's to say how strong you would be or I would be if you were faced with thousands of people telling you how great you are and how smart you are? I mean, how much would it take you to, to start believing it? Okay, welcome back. So in part three, of course, we like to talk about the ending or the title or the big takeaways. I think we've touched on some of that already, but Dan, you look like you got something. Well, you said, you know, you mentioned Sean Connery on the bridge and him recovering his former self, you know, and, and recovering himself in the eyes of the audience too. So he sees what he's done. The priest, as you remember in the film, go through the film with their eyes shut. And when, when, some, when uh, someone asks, why do they do that? The answer is so they don't see all the badness around them. Now, it's funny because in Key Largo, we had a conversation and we did not plan this for today's show. But when we did Key Largo, we talked about, you know, how, how, how do you respond to evil? You, can you be like an impotent old man? Can you be like Nora? Can you be like Frank? Are you like Toots? Are you like um, uh, um, Gay Dawn who tries to go along with, you know, Johnny Rocco? In this film, you get kind of, you get kind of the same thing. Who sees what? You know, um, Peachy and Dandy go into this with their eyes wide open, and then Danny's vision gets obscured for a while. But then he then he then the you know the veil is rent. Then he he sees it through a glass darkly, and then he sees things as it really is at the end. And it's kind of funny that Peachy sees so much. He's like the ancient mariner when he comes back. He reminded me absolutely of the ancient mariner from the Coleridge poem, right? He comes back, and so anything you see, any knowledge you get, like like in the figurative sense, like I see, oh, I see now. Any quote unquote seeing you get, any vision you get of people comes with a cost. So when PG comes back, he, I mean, he's, he's holding up his hand. He's a mess. Kipling doesn't even recognize him in the, in the beginning before he, he goes into the frame tale. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that the movie shows you different ways of, of seeing the human condition. Well, there's that, but then you, you get a literal memento mori. So you, it's, it's not just that yeah, the, um, the vision has to be implied, it has to be explicit, right? <laughs> you, get, you get his head, his head which on is exactly, desk. you know, which is either Yorick or, you know, uh, Hamlet's mother is like, right. get thee to my lady's chamber. And, uh, you know, uh, so it's, it's got to be, it's got to be literal. So I, I under, I agree with you that the film is about the cost, but I think the cost of not doing so is far worse. And, and again, that's where this exists in between sentiment and sentimentality, because there's there's really no black or white. It's not an either or it's a th this is the way it is. And this is what you have to do. You have to keep your eyes open, but you, you've got to look at your own risk. Well, that's like John Stuart Mill said, you know, better to be a better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. There comes Socrates again. Socrates popped up twice in this episode. Better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Now that's, you know, that's one way to, to think about it. So at the end, you know, Kipling's eyes are open when he sees, literally sees the head there across from him and the credits roll, right? But, you know, people, people see a lot of things and it can do different things to them. Think about Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. I mean, he sees, he sees right into what the heart of darkness of humanity and, and it, it drives him mad. But there is, but there's, but there's a clear difference between heart of darkness, colonialism, and, uh, and the man who would be king colonialism. And, it, and it's in, the attitude or th this movie was made with joy. Michael Caine 
uh, still says that this was his favorite movie to make. Sean Connery up to the end of his life said that this yes. was his absolute favorite movie to make. And we've been talking about some of the serious implications of, of the movie or some of the things that even if you don't think about them explicitly are implicitly working on your mind as you watch the movie. But this movie is a ton of fun to watch for a reason. Oh yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a romp with ideas. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to our, we hope you've enjoyed listening to our conversation about the man who would be King. Please follow us on Twitter at one five man film. Let us know what we should watch. We have a, a whole bunch of requests we're working through uh, this season. Um, we're still taking them. We're still recording. You could also email us at 15 minute film. That's spelled out at gmail.com. Please subscribe. Please re- leave us reviews. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.